Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We are going to continue our study in the letter of Paul to the Philippian church. So if you have your Bibles, encourage you to open them up to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at the last little bit of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. So just to, once again, bring us up to speed together, remember that our whole focus in this study of the the letter uh, of Paul to the Philippian church is to remember this phrase that he teaches us that's true for both himself and for us. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That for every believer, our understanding of salvation and the Christian life should be such that we walk daily living for Christ, living unto Christ, with the understanding that we can sacrifice everything this side of eternity because when we die, we will experience gain, uh, including complete freedom from sin, but also we're going to see today uh, reiterated the idea of resurrection and new life. And so for us to live as Christ and to die as gain, wow, it just went nuts. But that's okay. I know how to fix it. So Paul tells us this. He says, because you're Christians, because you're saved, I want you, as you live Christ, to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jesus paid so much to redeem you, to save you, to bring you to life. Won't you live differently in response to that? And so uh, later on in the letter, just just a a, a few verses before what we're going to look at today, Paul says that his goal and what should be our goal is to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to be conformed to his his death, and to, to know that we one day will experience the resurrection from the dead. And he says everybody who is a Christian and growing and maturing, you should think this way. And if you don't, that's okay. God will help you think this way. And uh, so he, he kind of gets in a jab at us and saying, it's time to mature. It's time to get the right focus. And then he says to us in verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. And so this Christian life is a lifestyle of modeling ourselves after those who model themselves after Jesus. And we're going to see this call to Christ-like living reiterated in the passage we're looking at today. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, you can, you can scroll, you can open, you can turn to verse, or chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, and then the first three chapter, uh, verses of chapter 4. So here we go. Let's read together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul is taking us on a, a little bit of a journey here, reminding us that we are united together as Christians. And so he begins by telling us that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we got to go back a little bit to an earlier sermon and, and see a, a little bit about ancient Philippi. If you remember, along with me, ancient Philippi was a Roman colony. And it was on one of the major roads that went from uh, Greece all the way toward Rome. So it was a critical place in the Roman Empire. But it was, as a Roman colony, it was unique because the people who lived in Philippi and its surrounding lands, they were actually Roman citizens who had the same rights and privileges as those who lived in the city of Rome and on the Italian uh, uh, peninsula there. And so it's, it's, it's critical for you uh, to understand that when you talked to somebody in Philippi, they were proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens with the same rights and privileges as those who lived in Rome. And so when, when Paul begins to talk about citizenship, he's, he's speaking their language because this is how they identify, is they are Roman citizens. They didn't have to pay taxes for certain things that other people just outside of their city would have had to pay taxes to Rome for. They were able to, to uh, have legal representation and standing in the courts that others around them did not have simply because of the nature of their Roman citizenship. So when Paul says to them, that our citizenship as Christians is in heaven. If he were talking to them physically, he would have said something like, your citizenship is in Rome, physically. But your spiritual citizenship, your, the, the citizenship that really defines you, our citizenship, it is in heaven. So this thing that you thought was important about yourself, your Roman citizenship, it actually pales in comparison to your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And so he's, he's painting this picture of a people who understand what it's like to live in a, an outpost colony. They're in the middle of a foreign territory. They're in the middle of another land. And yet they belong to a different country. They, they have their standing somewhere else. They have their, the fullness of who they are is expressed not in the land where they live, but instead miles and miles away in a different city. So they were Roman citizens living in the middle of a foreign terra, territory, in, in the middle of Macedonia. And, and Paul is saying to us as Christians, to them as Christians, listen, it's like that. You live in a foreign place. You live in a place that's different. And you are defined not by that place, but instead you are defined by the place where you have your citizenship. And your citizenship, it's not in Rome. Your citizenship, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's in heaven. And you're going to feel out of place sometimes. And you're going to feel like you don't quite belong here. And that's normal. In fact, it's right and it's proper. 
And when you struggle and when you have issues, it's not appealing to the culture and the world around you where you're going to find strength and justice, but instead by appealing to your citizenship in heaven where you're going to find ultimate justice, where you're going to find ultimate strength, where you're going to find ultimate purpose and meaning. And so Paul is, is trying to help the Philippian church shift their focus from their physical condition to their spiritual condition. And I think this is so critical for many of us today because we have churches, and, and what I mean by churches are denominations and, and church leaders who are preaching to us that we, as Christians, the most important thing should be making the world a better place or changing the world where we live and making this place just and making it holy and making it right when what Scripture tells us is that our hope is not in the culture that's around us but in our salvation through Christ Jesus, in our belonging to someplace better and more important and more just and more righteous. We are citizens in heaven right now. And so when, we, when we're struggling, when we're looking for hope, when we're looking for things to change, it's not that we're supposed to be going out and changing the, the broken culture around us. It's we're supposed to be inviting more people into the citizenship that will revolutionize them. Inviting more people into the citizenship that will bring true justice and true peace. And that, and that alone is citizenship in heaven, which comes through profession of faith in Christ Jesus and walking a life of discipleship with him. I mean, Paul really wants to, to get the Philippians and us out of a mindset of focusing on what's right in front of us and instead focusing on what is ours in Christ Jesus. And, and he uses a couple of words. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is, in Roman culture at this time, they actually viewed Caesar, the, the ruler, and there were a number of Caesars. So when you hear somebody talk about Caesar, it's not just one dude who lived for like 400 years. Uh, we, we have the Caesars who began with Julius Caesar. Everybody uh, is probably familiar with him. Uh, you know, uh, tomorrow, no, two days is the Ides of March. That's when Brutus and Cassius, that's when they stabbed him, and everybody in the Senate killed Julius Caesar. So maybe you didn't pay attention in high school, that's okay. I was actually in Latin club, and I took three years of Latin. And what do I know from that? I can count to ten, and I can call your mother unsavory things in Latin. And that is all I remember from Latin. So if you've got a child that's saying, hey mom, hey dad, I'd like to take Latin, discourage them. Don't, don't, don't let the guidance counselor convince them, well they're... Latin's in the law, and there's lots of medicines that use Latin. It's, it's whatever. It's worthless. So anyway, um, uh, but, but what's going on in the culture there with Julius Caesar, he began to be the emperor. Before that, Rome was kind of a, a sort of democracy, uh, a republic. But Julius Caesar came in, he became emperor, and then there are Caesars that follow after him. When Jesus was born, do you know, remember which Caesar was in charge? According to Luke, Caesar Augustus. Yes, some of you guys remember. You remember the, the, the Christmas plays, you know, in that year, Caesar Augustus called for the, you know, a, a um, he decreed, anyway, it doesn't. Census, thank you. Somebody said census out loud. It was a decree for a census. 
Caesar Augustus. Anyway, and then every emperor of Rome after that, his name, well, the title was Caesar. And, and so this is why we get to, you know, we get to German history. We got the Kaisers, right? That's actually a German version of the name Caesar. Uh, so so it, it means ruler, but it started as an individual, Julius. And so when they looked at the Caesars, they actually saw deity. They believed as early as 9 BC that the Caesars were gods who had been given authority to bring peace to their world. In fact, uh, under, uh, excuse me, under Augustus Caesar, we have what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that, that was one of the most peaceful and prosperous times in ancient history. And Jesus was born into that, and the gospel spread during the Pax Romana. But, but Romans had this view that Caesar was their savior from the troubles of this world, and he was their lord, their king. And so when Paul says to the Philippian church, their citizenship is in heaven, he's saying Rome doesn't matter nearly as much as your affiliation with Christ in heaven matters. And he says, you're waiting for a savior from there, the Lord Christ Jesus. If Caesar had ever come to visit Philippi, they would have rolled out the red carpet. They would have been so excited to have Caesar, their Lord, their savior from the hardships of this life, come and visit them. And Paul says, your real savior, your real Lord is Jesus. And your citizenship being in heaven, you are waiting for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of all, to come and bring freedom and life to every citizen of his kingdom, even the ones who live out far away in a distant colony like you do. I hope you can, you can begin to put all this together because Paul's telling this to the Philippian church, but he's telling it to us too. Your citizenship is in heaven. You have a king. He is your Lord and Savior, and He is coming again to set you and I free. He's coming to bring to bear all the promises of His kingdom to us, His citizens in this lonely outpost who are struggling with the world around us. He's coming again, and He will fulfill His promises as King. And he, he, Paul says this, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. The, the, uh, the words here, humble, literally this is the bodies of our humiliation. He will transform the bodies of our humiliation. And some of us are more humiliated than others. Uh, as I have aged, I have become much more humiliated. Uh, you know, that, that this condition is much more difficult as the years progress. Anybody else have feelings like that? I slept wrong this week, and I haven't been able to walk or stand normally for the last four days. What's up with that? Why would that be? It's, it's my body of humiliation. It's this flesh that I struggle against. It is this this body that is broken by sin and depravity. And the promise is, is that the King, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who holds us in his hand, our ruler, he will come and he will transform this broken body into the likeness 
of his glorious body. Isn't that just amazing to think that the day will come when Jesus returns where he will change our physicality into a physicality that matches his. Now what is unique about Jesus' body as it exists today? It's resurrected. It is perfect. It is sinless. It is eternal. It is without sickness or blemish. Jesus' body is perfect. And this is the body that's promised to us. And, and I know when we talk about this, sometimes as modern believers, we start thinking, well, this is where Christianity starts to sound a little weird or far-fetched. Listen, this is the promise and the truth of Scripture. And if you can believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for the sake of your sins, I want you to understand that the, the next part of the promise The next thing that he comes to give us is not just freedom from sin and some promise of heaven someday, but a a new body and a new life in a world that's restored and redeemed forever and ever in his presence. And so if it sounds okay to go to heaven, shouldn't it sound even better to come to the day where this body is renewed and we are forever living life like it was always meant to be? In, in a few weeks, we're going to dive into the Old Testament, just the week after Easter, talking about creation. And, and by the time we start talking about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, we should be able to see this picture of what God wanted our lives to be like. To be walking with Him in fellowship. To be physically present with Him. To be sinless. To be whole and healed. To be without any any sadness or distractions to be able to experience the fullness of life. So often we live from vacation to vacation, don't we? We just kind of survive instead of thriving. We live from weekend to weekend. (laughs) And, And it's because it's only in those freeing moments that we're able to feel like we're alive. Imagine your vacation feelings forever. That feeling of life is good. I'm at peace. I feel good. I'm enjoying everything around me. This resurrection time, this resurrection body, this restored self is going to be pretty amazing. I am looking forward to it. I know it sounds a little far-fetched some moments, but it's true. If you believe the promise of salvation is true, you need to know the conclusion, the fullness of the promises of salvation is this resurrected body. And how will he do it? By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. In other words, he can do it because he has all the power and authority. He is more than able to bring these bodies back to real life when he returns for us. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who do you think the man of dust is? Anybody? Adam. Man of dust. God came down, formed Adam of dust. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, who is, this is where Christ comes in. Christ, that's right. We are all walking around in the brokenness and the dustiness of Adam. But the day will come when we will bear the image physically of the man of heaven, Christ Jesus. 
1 John 3, 2, John writes, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. When Jesus comes back, we will be like him physically. We will grow in Christ's likeness. Philippians, uh, or sorry, I thought I was uh, on the same, same thing. So anyway, when Jesus returns, we'll get a resurrected body, a renewed body. And Paul uses that to encourage us. So then, because you're citizens, because you have a promise that's sure, because he is your Lord and Savior, so then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Because you're a citizen of heaven, because Jesus is returning for you, because you have the promise of a renewed body that will look like the body of Christ, because of all of these good things that are promised to you, because death is gain, live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. Be certain of who you are in Christ. Be certain of how you're supposed to live, dear friends. And then he begins to detail what some of that will look like. He says this in verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. When, how come those names aren't popular nowadays? I don't know. It's, just, it's a challenge to all of you younger families who are still in childbearing years. Consider these names. Uh, this, this could be great. Actually, we'll talk about another name that would be even better here in just a second. So, I urge Iodia and I urge Sentiki to agree in the Lord. Yeah, so I also ask you, true partner. The true partner, some of you might have a Bible, and it says Syzygis in there. What? That's an even better name, isn't it? Syzygis. You mean scissors? No, Syzygis. Uh, and and uh, some, some translators think that uh, that word true partner is actually a formal name, Syzygis. Or others, like here in the Christian Standard Bible, treat it as just a true partner, an address to, to general believers. So Paul is saying, in light of who you are, in light of how you're supposed to be living, and you're living in this manner that is unified, you're living in this manner where you are standing firm in the Lord, I want you to do something for me. I want you to agree. I want you to get along with one another. And I want you to agree in the Lord, which means you don't necessarily have to agree about everything. What's everybody's favorite color, right? If we all just yelled out our favorite color, okay, uh, <laughs> we wouldn't all say the same color, would we? I mean, we could try it right now, right? On the count of three, everybody, don't yell, but just say with confidence your favorite color. Ready? One, two, three. Clear? So please pray for Ed. Um, and then Missy, who has to deal with Ed. Uh, no, but, but we can tell. It's, we don't even agree on, on our favorite colors, right? We don't agree on politics. We don't agree on what is the best car, Ford or Chevy, right? I mean, I, I grew up in the South where if you drove a Ford in a Chevy congregation, you were like an outcast. You drive a Chevy in a Ford congregation, you're dumb. I mean, it's just... Uh, there, there's just these rules, right? I mean, who's your favorite NASCAR driver? And some of you are like, I hate NASCAR. Right! Right? So many things to disagree about. And the thing is, is Paul doesn't say agree about everything. What's your favorite food? Agree. No. But agree. Hot dogs. I, okay. 
It's cool. It's cool. I mean, there are some really good hot dogs, I just got to say. Uh, yeah, a rhetorical question, yes. Uh, however, it's okay to answer some things out loud. I'm cool with it. So uh, we're, we're supposed to not agree about all these other things, but agree in the Lord. In other words, how do we know if we're agreeing in the Lord? Well, let's go back to what is our authority. Well, we go back to what, what is telling us what the Lord thinks and how the Lord speaks. It's His Word. This is what we have. And so when God's Word says something is true, how do, we, how do we agree in the Lord? We agree with what God has said. We agree with what He states. We agree with what Christ has taught. We agree. And so there is no real room for disagreement on these clear teachings. Now, th- there are some secondary teachings. There are some things that are, are like, well, I don't quite see it that way. And maybe there's room to disagree. But really, what we, we must begin with is coming to a point where we agree on the clear te- teachings of Scripture. Now, it's believed that Yodia and Syntyche, they probably were two, they're two women, and they led in some form or fashion within the church, and their disagreement could have been just doctrinal, but it probably was also personal. And that these two women were not getting along to the extent that they were causing damage within the church. That there were starting to potentially be factions within the church. Anybody ever seen that in a church? Where two different people tend to gather around them like groups. It's kind of like, you know, the sharks and the jets and you're just waiting for the rumble, right? And I mean, it's just... (laughs) Shelly doesn't like West Side Story. And so when I use things like that, she's just like, what is wrong with you? Anyway, I was going to bust into song, you know, but Eodia and Syntyche, they, they, they were getting to the point in their disagreement that they were dividing the church potentially. And, and so Paul is trying to get them to the, to the place where they, he says, have grace for one another on certain things, but above all else, come back together and be unified as believers. Even if you don't agree which truck's the best. You don't agree which food to choose for the potluck. You, you, you dislike each other's political candidates. Come together and agree in the Lord. And then he says, I also ask you, says just or true partner. In other words, anyone who's walking with them, anyone who is part of this gospel citizenship, this, this kingdom of heaven, who we're waiting for the Lord together. I want you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says to them, says, says to the true partner, to the one who is in the middle of it, I want you to help these women agree. I want you to help create peace in the local church. I want you to come alongside others who have fought for the gospel and not allow stupid things to divide fellow believers. Why? Because we're all citizens in heaven together. We're all waiting anxiously, eagerly for our Savior to return and make our salvation whole. And so we should be unified together as we celebrate our belonging, as we wait for Jesus together. And so when there are divisions, it is unhealthy and it is unbiblical. Instead, we should be working to reunite with all of these faithful believers. And I want you to notice that Paul, with these two women who had disagreement, 
He never says, they're probably not even saved because they're unhappy. They, they're causing trouble in the church. You should kick them out. Instead, he says, their names are written in the book of life. They're saved. They're believers. They are, they're citizens of heaven. And so I want them and I want everyone around them to work to bring unity in the church. I want to see you grow together. I want to see you no longer divided, but I want to see you coming together around the things that are certain in our faith and focusing on those things and living for those things and sharing those things. And really, Paul, in in saying this, is saying to all of them in Philippi and all of us in the church today, we are all responsible for unity in the church. I mean, this is an important thing. This is a a, a fill-in-the-blank-on-your-notes kind of thing. We are all responsible for unity in the church. Every one of us. And so the church should be preserved. The church, because we're all citizens in the same kingdom, we're all waiting for the same Lord and Savior. We're all eagerly anticipating the final moment of our salvation as we are transformed into the likeness of Christ and brought back to fullness of life, we are all responsible for unity in the church because we are all to be unified as one. Jesus teaches us how to be unified, how to deal with division. So while Paul gives all of us, along with Iodia and Syntyche, a command or a strong urging to be at peace and to be unified, Jesus teaches us how to do it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. It's in your, uh, your, Bible, or your notes on the Bible app as well, so you should just be able to keep scrolling if you're using your Bible app. But Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Here, here Jesus is teaching as part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And some scholars, some teachers have said that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chap- Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, is akin to, it's like a constitution for the new kingdom of God that Jesus is establishing. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we should read it as the founding document for the Christian faith. We should see it as this is the ideal This is how we're supposed to be living. This is the way that Jesus would like to see his kingdom function for those who are citizens of it. And so we see him talking about a number of things. We see in Matthew chapter 5 the Beatitudes. We see the the, the commendation to us that we are to be salt and light. and, And that Jesus fulfills the law. And then he begins to talk about murder. And you might wonder, what does murder have to do with this? Have you ever been so displeased with someone you would have been happy to kill them? I mean, you wouldn't kill them, but it just sounds like it would have been a nice solution, right? Like, I would like for them to be dead. Um, and, and that seems to happen to me when I'm driving a lot, right? I, I don't know why. I, I, it's, yeah, it feels like that a little bit sometimes. I try not to rage. I just wonder why they're all trying to kill me right? And so sometimes I want them to die. And, and here's what Jesus has to say about murder. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. And we all go, well, yeah, 
that makes sense. And Jesus goes on to say this in verse 22, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Jesus takes murder from a physical act to a spiritual act. And he says, if you are to the point in your life that your anger consumes you in regard to a brother or sister in Christ, you will face judgment. If that anger moves to the point of insults, you'll be subject to the courts. And the courts that Jesus is talking about is that judgment of the church, the judgment of the kingdom. If you say to them, you fool, you will be subject to hellfire. No longer do we just need to take a knife and take care of someone. Jesus says, your attitude toward other believers puts you in danger of judgment. The way that you treat others, the way that you speak to them, puts you in danger of judgment when you are a citizen of my kingdom. And so I want you to be aware of it. And not only do I want you to be aware of it, but he says this, so, referring to what he's just taught, he says, so, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says to us, your attitude can put you in danger of judgment. Your attitude towards other brothers and sisters. And so I so want you to be at peace that if you are coming to worship and remember that someone else is holding something against you, before you enter into the act of worship, I want you to go and make things right with them and then come and spend time with me. Do you see how how critical unity in the church is? Jesus is saying to us that we should be so dissatisfied with broken relationships within the church family that if we know someone is holding a grudge against us, we should go to them and try and make it right before we come to worship again. We should go to them and try and apologize and try and make peace. He doesn't say, if you've got something wrong with somebody else here, he says, if you think somebody else has something against you, you go to them and try and make peace. This is not normal behavior for us as people. But it is Christ-like behavior. And it is the kind of behavior that preserves and builds ever-increasing unity within a church. Wouldn't it be cool if all of us, if we thought there was something wrong in a relationship with somebody else, instead of posting some passive-aggressive thing on social media, instead went to that person and said, I feel like there's something between us. Is there? And if so, how can I make it right? How do we solve this? How do we move forward? So that we might be, like Paul encouraged Iodia and Syntyche, we might be people who agree in the Lord. 
right? We might not agree that Ford is better than Chevy, but we will agree in the Lord together. And so Jesus in Matthew 5, 21 through 24 says this to us. When someone is hurt because of you, go to them and be reconciled. Too often, instead, we will sit back and go, well, I mean, if they come to me, I'll apologize. Jesus says, if you know there's something wrong, you go and you make peace. Now, he doesn't just leave it there. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus teaching some additional truth. Not different, but additional. And so if you'll turn with me there to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. So first Jesus says, if you know that your brother has something against you, if you know that another believer is holding a grudge against you, if you know that another, another believer was offended by something you said or did, you go to them without them saying anything, and you try and make things right. And then in Matthew 18 here, Jesus says something a little different. He says this in verses 15 through 17, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen... Take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So, Jesus says, when you come to worship and you know that somebody else has something against you, go make things right before you begin to worship. And then here, he says, if you have an issue with someone else, in the, the church, in the kingdom of God, I want you to go to them privately and try and make things right. Not make a big stink about it. Not gather up a team of sharks or jets and try and resolve things with a rumble. Instead, he says, go to that person quietly, go to them alone, and try and make things right. Now, some of us, we think that going to them quietly means, once again, posting it on social media and hoping that they'll read it and maybe even calling them by name and telling them what a terrible person they are or gossiping about them and telling others why they've hurt our feelings and why they deserve to be looked down upon. But that's not what Jesus says to do. If we are to agree in the Lord... When someone has hurt our feelings, when somebody has gone against us, when somebody has done something that hurts us within the church body, a fellow believer, we are supposed to go to them one-on-one -on -one and try and make things right. Now, it does escalate. It says if they won't repent, if they won't acknowledge that they've hurt you and try and resolve and reconcile with you, then you grab a couple of other believers to go and talk to them. And if they still won't respond to the hurt that they've caused, then you have every right to let the leadership of the church know and let the church body know so that they can be called out properly so they might seek to see them restored. But if they still won't respond, then you're supposed to no longer allow them in the fellowship. Now, 
This is a big deal, and it's not something we do well. Either of these two things. To go to someone when they know that they have that we've got they've got something against us, or when we're hurt, to go to the person who hurt us and seek reconciliation. Now, there are certain circumstances, don't don't get me wrong, where where this is is not just difficult, but maybe ill-advised. When we're talking about actual abuse, emotional abuse or manipulation, you don't go back into that headlong once you realize what it is and try and fix things. Sometimes you just need distance and to forgive the person without ever talking to them. But, but if you can, and especially when it's over issues that shouldn't matter to us as Christians, learn how to go and talk to your brothers and sisters and seek reconciliation. You hurt my feelings because you didn't talk to me that Sunday. And, and guess what? I, I know that I can't talk to everybody every week. And if it ever hurts your feelings that I don't talk to you, I am so sorry. Please come to me and talk to me. And, and I realize that may seem counterintuitive, but I just, I can't chase everybody every week. I can't chase any, everybody any week. And the same is true for your Sunday school teachers, for your friends. They can't always chase you down. And if you're hurt, let them know. Be reconciled. You know, if you're arguing over the color of the carpet and the chairs, which churches have been known to do, believe it or not, it's time to let those kinds of things go and to be reconciled. When you disagree with how the rest of the church decides to spend some money, has that ever happened? You were the only no vote. I've been that guy, the only no vote, or the only yes vote. That's even more hard to deal with. You people have no faith uh, when you're the only yes vote. The, the thing is, though, is when it doesn't go your way, to not allow that to become a dividing point for you, but instead be reconciled and focus on the things that you agree on with your brothers and sisters. So we have these two two. two Things straight from Jesus. When someone is hurt because of you, you're supposed to go to them and be reconciled. And then when you're hurt because of someone else, you're supposed to go to them and seek to be reconciled. Now when we put these two together, there are no hidden hurts. Because we have all worked to drag them out into the light and deal with them lovingly together. Why? Because if I'm the, the, the cannonball, the, the bull in the china shop, and I know I hurt people's feelings all the time, and I hear that somebody's hurt, I should be going to them and resolving it. I'm the quiet person, and I just sit and suffer in silence. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be going to people who've hurt your feelings, who you have an offense against, and trying to reconcile things. Now, we also have to be careful and make sure that we're not just ninnies and allowing everything to hurt our feelings and needing to mature. And, and if you are tender-spirited, that's different than being a ninny, right? You can be tender and not be a ninny. What is a ninny? That's just a weird word. Anyway, but we should be seeking to reconcile. We should be seeking to be at peace and be unified. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. It's only 11 o'clock, according to this clock. I can keep going for another 45 minutes. 
Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander only happen in church business meetings. No. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he's writing to us, and Jesus is speaking through him. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Now, some of these words we might get a little confused with. Bitterness, though, we understand. Bitterness is that person that walks in the building and we just give them a side eye. I don't really like them. And we're holding a grudge against them for some reason that we need to be reconciled to them. Anger and wrath. Anger is an emotion that can be proper and can be a right response to wrongdoing. And Paul earlier had said to the church in Ephesus, in your anger, do not sin. Wrath is when you let your anger go and you behave like a buffoon in response to the emotion of anger. And some of us have done that. I have struggled with that throughout my lifetime. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, forget that, slander, speaking ill of one another, let it be removed from you along with all malice or evil thought. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. The ultimate rule for unity in the church is to forgive as you have been forgiven. If we all practice removing the behavior that is abhorrent to our Savior and putting on Christ-likeness and forgiving as we have been forgiven, we will find unity in our body. We will find unity in our church. And so, the things just to hold in mind today as we wrap up, remember where your allegiance lies and from where your Savior comes. You, if you are a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. That is where your allegiance lies. That is where your hope comes from. That is where your Savior will come from. Do not turn your eyes to anything in this world and expect it to give meaning and hope and purpose like your citizenship in heaven will. Don't expect anyone else or any other policy or any other government to bring you salvation and life because it can only be found in King Jesus. Christian, keep your focus on the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a resurrected life awaits all of the citizens of heaven. That should be exciting. A life where there are no more backaches, no more tears, no more pains, no more struggles, and above all else, no more sin. We are to be standing firm in the Lord together. And above all, seeking to agree in the Lord. And some of us, we know someone's got something against us. We need to go make things right with them. Others, we've been holding grudges. And we need to go to the person who's hurt us and try and seek reconciliation. But above all else, we should be unified as we eagerly await the Savior who will come and give us a resurrected life. What good things are ahead for the Christian? Because for all of us, to live is Christ 
but to die. And when Christ returns, it will be the end of the death of this life and the beginning of the next. That will be gain. And so we have much to look forward to and many reasons, brothers and sisters, to seek to live out this life as we should, remembering our allegiance, remembering where our hope comes from, and above all else, agreeing in the Lord as we move forward today. Let's pray together. And as we begin to, to pray, uh, I just want to encourage you to, to enter into a moment of, of prayerfulness. And if there is someone here today that you know is holding something against you, I want to encourage you to just take a moment and pray that God would give you the boldness to go and be reconciled. And this morning, if you are holding a grudge against someone, I want to encourage you to talk to God and ask for the boldness to forgive them and to go to them and try and be made right. Not accusing, not in condemning ways, but instead just saying, you hurt me when? And giving them an opportunity for reconciliation. So either of those two circumstances this morning, I encourage you to just take a moment and ask for God's strength and help and conviction in resolving those things amongst us as brothers and sisters in Christ. loving as we have been loved and that we might forgive even as we've been forgiven. 
continue to knit us together and make us true partners in the kingdom. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And we are so thankful for all you've done for us. Let's stand together and close with our last worship song.
Thank you. 